0: morning. There we go. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for coming. We're studying God's Word this summer on the subject of heaven. We've been going through a series of different uh, topical sermons, and uh, we've looked at things like the eternal city that uh, we will live in. We've looked at what our eternal bodies will be like. We've answered the question, what will we be doing? Are we going to be bored? We've been going through all these subjects, talking about our eternal destiny uh, with Christ. And today I've titled the message, The In-Between, Part 2. And the reason for that is because last week we looked at a, a lesson that came out of a passage where uh, Christ told a story about a rich man, and Lazarus, who uh, died and went to a place called Abraham's bosom. And we were talking about that. And as we, what came out of that was there are some things from that story where we learned that God uses um, temporary things. But let me hold off on that for a second. Because what I, here's what I want to start out with today. Every time we've talked about something like the eternal city, and, the, and it's described. And we look at that and we go, oh, that's that's, that's great. That's going to be in the future. This is what our future bodies will be like. Oh, that's going to be great. That, that, that's in the future. But there are some passages in Scripture where we read them and we go, oh, that's great. That's going to... Oh, but wait a minute. There's something mixed in there that doesn't seem like that belongs in eternal destiny. And there's a mix. It's like It's almost like there's a place where we're almost to eternal destiny, but not quite there. And let me just read a few of them for you to, to, so you can see this. So this comes out of Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet that talked a lot about uh, uh, future. And he says in chapter 11 of the book of Isaiah, he says, <clears throat> Now I'm going to read to you some verses that are before these. So listen, and then we'll pick up here. But he says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall feed, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The sucking child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now you see, you hear those verses and you go, well, that sounds like peace He's talking about a lion and a lamb together a child who's near a snake and he's not a, he doesn't there's no harm there's no destroying that sounds like the future and that's often the and that's great but then Isaiah says this In that day and this is where I put it up there in that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for all the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his dwellings shall be glorious in that day, the Lord will extend His hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of His people. Now, there's a couple things in those verses that you go, wait a minute. How can that be part of destiny? How can there be people who are still inquiring about God? Are we all believers at that point? Why do we need to ask questions and inquire? You see, Wayne Grudem, a theologian, said, Here some are still seeking the Messiah and apparently coming to salvation, and here also the Lord is still gathering the remnant of His people from various nations of the earth. It does not seem, therefore, that the eternal state has begun yet. In Psalm 72, he says, He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The desert tribes will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present him gifts. All kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him for he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy And save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence. And I've been picking out the parts and putting them up there that are are the aspects that you go, wait a minute, how can that be part of eternity? That doesn't seem right. And yet, when I started out, everything I was saying, that sounds like eternity. He's a ruling uh, from shore to shore. He's recognized. But then you get to this part and you say, how can there be those that are needy, that cry out, taking pity on the weak, saving the needy from death. And it seems like a mix, doesn't it? Let me give you one more. This comes from Zechariah. He prophesies about a coming age in which there's a great transformation of the earth. He says in Zechariah chapter 14, and I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to just give you some parts. It's a lot of verses, but it says, Then the Lord, your God, will come... And all the holy ones with him, on that day, there shall be neither cold nor frost. And he goes on to describe, and on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, and the Lord will become king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will smite all the peoples that wage war, against Jerusalem. And he goes on to describe that, their flesh shall rot uh, while they're still on their feet. But then he goes on and says, then everyone that survives, all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king. And the point that I'm making here is that I'm reading to you these texts of scriptures, and they seem to indicate a coming age where there's a lot that's described that sounds like eternity, but then there's some little things weaved in. You we go, well, that that doesn't seem to fit in eternity. And that's why I'm coming back to this idea of God's use of temporaries. And I set this up last week when we talked about the rich man and Lazarus. And show me the next slide. Do you remember last week we had the chasm? And I use this to illustrate the great chasm. Because in, in Abraham's bosom, which was what, where it was described that The rich man who died and Lazarus who died went and they were separated and they were on two sides of this. Abraham's bosom was made up of three places. There was Hades, which was a place of torment, and then there was a great chasm, that was another part of it, and then there was paradise. And the rich man went over to Hades and Lazarus was in paradise. And we talked about that last week, but one of the things we drew from that story was God's use of temporaries. Because Hades in that story is a temporary hell. It's not the final hell. It's not the eternal hell. When you get to the end of Revelation, you have the lake of fire, which is being prepared. After the great white throne judgment, those who are judged will be cast into the lake of fire. But prior to that, the Bible says that death and Hades will give up the dead, and then they will stand trial and then they go into the lake of fire. So this is temporary hell. There was a, a time in the timeline of history where Christ died on the cross. Before that time, those who put their faith in God and His promise of a future Messiah, when they died, they went to Abraham's bosom, but they, it was like a holding tank for all these souls. And on one side were those where Lazarus went who had faith. But that's a temporary hell heaven it was a temporary paradise because as we talked about last week Christ came and he went down into paradise and he collected them and he brought them back with him he took captivity captive it says and now Paul says absent from the body you're with the Lord in paradise we looked at temporary bodies if i die my body's going to go into that ground and it's going to stay there it might you know disintegrate down A body could go all the way down to dust, but it's there in the dust, and it stays there until the day Christ returns. We're going to talk about that yet in another sermon. And our bodies are resurrected. They're made alive. We looked at last week where Paul said, Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection, and we will follow in His manner. Those who believe in Christ will be resurrected in the same way that He was resurrected. But if my body goes there, and Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, then my body's there, then what do I look like up there? Am I a ghost, a spirit? And Paul answered that question last week where he said when this temporary earthly tent is destroyed, meaning death, that God gives a temporary dwelling is the word he uses, And we we have a, a there's all this use of temporaries. Now, I'm going to give you another one. This is why I've kind of laid it out this way. The the temporary that we're going to look at today is something called the millennium. And it works like this. Right now, earth, here's where we are, where we live. There's an eternal destiny here. We've been talking about the, the eternal city, the eternal king, our eternal bodies, our eternal work. But there is an age of time called the millennium where we will transition from this to that. And just like, can you go back a slide? All of those hell, heaven bodies that I walk through, each one of them is a foretaste of the future. Temporary hell, a foretaste of the lake of fire. Why? Because it still had burning. It was a place of torment as as the rich man was describing it. So will be the lake of fire. Temporary paradise or heaven. Lazarus was being comforted. It was paradise, a foretaste of heaven, not yet the eternal heaven. Temporary bodies. All of it is a foretaste and so will, now you can move forward to the millennium slide, because the millennium also is a foretaste. What will happen in the millennium? is setting us up. It's a foretaste for what eternity will be like. We're not quite there yet. You could also say not only is it a foretaste, but it's a transition where we go from where we're at now to the future. It is the precursor. It's something that precedes the final thing that's going to usher in the final thing. So I also use the word, it's the penultimate age Meaning, if you don't know what the word penultimate means, penultimate means it's the thing that comes before the last. So if you're watching a TV show and there's 24 episodes in that show, the final 24th ultimate episode, but the 23rd episode would be the penultimate episode. It's the last one before the last one, is how you think of it. And just think about a show if you watch any shows. It's like, you, you, they take you on a narrative, and it's all going to climax in the end. It's not going to climax here, because then why watch the last episodes? It climax, A good show climaxes at the end, and it leads you into that. The penultimate one sets you up for that last episode. And the millennium is the penultimate age. It is the last age before the final age. Now, I use the word millennium because it means... 1000 years and we get this from Revelation. In Revelation chapter 20, I'm going to read through some of these verses and I've highlighted on the screen so you can see how many times John uses the word 1000 years. So you can follow along with me on the screen. John's writing, he says, "Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain." And he seized the dragon that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. I think that's interesting. You get four different names right there for him. And bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. Then John goes on to say, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on the on the foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life, Until the thousand years were ended, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nation's that are at the four corners of the earth. And I'm going to stop there. At least through this, you could see how many times it uses the word thousand years. And this is what I'm doing today. I want to talk to you about this period of time, this thousand years, known as the millennium. Now, we understand, we know what millennium, right? Because we just went through the changing of time into a new millennium, did we not? Where were you when we went from 1999 to 2000? Can you think in your head where you were? Where were you? Do you know where I was? I actually, this came to my mind in the last week as I was preparing this. And it gave me an idea. I always like to think about how I'm going to present uh, a sermon. Do you know where I was? I was standing right out here at the amphitheater preaching a message here at Bayview Church. I wasn't even a member here. I was a youth pastor at another church up in Jigo, Gigo Baptist Church, and I had begun to network with other youth pastors. And there was a guy here named John Barry who was working with the youth, and we collaborated, and we were figuring this out because I asked, "Who was here at this church at the turn of the millennium? Anybody?" Wow, talk about a turnover! Yeah, right. Yeah, and where were you? Where, did any of you come to the? Did you come to the? Uh, were you here? do you remember me preaching? Do you? I don't, you know. No, it, wasn't, it was forgettable, right? Is that what you're saying? It was forgettable. That's better than Robert Oshiro. First service, he says, I was here. I said, were you, at the, were you at this party? No. I says, you were at another party, you know. But the point is, I can remember I was standing there, and in my mind's eye, I, I remember once I turned around, and I looked at, and I pointed out all the lights over there, Because everybody, do you remember the the millennium? It was like, it's going to be the end of the world. The computers are going to like not know what to do. They're going to change over. The lights are going to go out. And people were hiding food in their closets just in case. I mean, do you remember this? And I remember I preached this sermon. I'm standing out there and I was like, the millennium's almost here. Look over there. The lights could be gone in an hour and all, you know, and it was like leading into the message, you know, and it was like the countdown to the millennium. But that's what I want to do today a countdown to the millennium. I'm going to give you five points. Five, four, three, two, one, to the millennium. A countdown. And you're going to get an overview of what this time period is. And I hopefully walk away from here with a better idea of it. <clears throat> so here's the first one, the five. Five, four, three, two, one. Here's the five. five features of the millennium. Five things to describe what this time period will be like. And the first one is it will be a time of peace. So the passage that I just read, you have, as you're reading through Revelation, this climaxing point where all the nations have surrounded Israel and they're against Israel. They want to destroy Israel and in chapter 19 of Revelation, you have the Christ who returns and he defeats them. And then we go into, so you have this great battle known as the Battle of Armageddon. And then you go into chapter 20, that's where we're at. And now he's going to set up his kingdom. Okay? And what will that kingdom be like? And the Bible tells us it will be a time filled with peace. Now, many of the verses I'm going to give you, they come out of the Old Testament. The prophets of the Old Testament often were looking. Uh, forward in time in describing um, eternity and describing things like this. Micah chapter 4 verse 3 says he shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. It will be a time where there are no wars. Christ the King will accomplish what the UN has never been able to do. The UN has come together. Let's bring all the nations together into one um, building where we can talk about our issues so that it doesn't lead to wars. And they haven't been able to prevent that. Admirable goal. But Christ, when he reigns on earth as a king, his kingdom will be one marked by peace. I like what it says there. The sword changed into plows. You see a, a repurposing even of the things of this earth, things meant for war now being utilized. Imagine countries whose, I mean, the U.S. is often known as having the largest military budget in the world. No money spent on that. Don't need to, because there's no wars. Second feature of the millennium, it will be a time of prosperity. I mean, just the fact that there are no wars it's going to lead to prosperity. Wars tend to crumble economies, suck resources away into uh, militaries that destroy each other. Famines often accompany wars. There's a lack of food. So just the fact that it's a time of peace is going to lead to better prosperity. But not only that, Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 34, and I'm just giving you part of this, I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will cause showers to come down in their season, and there shall be showers of blessing. And he goes on in verse 27 to talk about bringing forth a harvest. Uh, And so you see prosperity. And again, the Bible in these contexts... Usually, use agriculture as a means to communicate these things, but it's not just the farming. In totality, the economies, including agricultural, are going to prosper. And it will be as a result of peace, but also a result of God's orchestration. I will bring showers of blessing. Third feature of the millennium, it will be a time of purity. Isaiah says in chapter 11, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Zechariah chapter 13 says, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they shall no longer be remembered. I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart the land. You will see a purging of the kinds of things that bring about depravity, that turn people away from righteousness. Zechariah goes on to say, I think this is a phenomenal verse, in those days, 10 men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Christ will return, he will set up his kingdom, centered around Jerusalem, and Zechariah saying, the knowledge of the Lord will be global and ten men from every nation, every language will grab the sleeve of a Jewish man. Tell me about your king. At the end of the first service, Steve W., one of our elders, he's a Jew, and I went up to him and I grabbed his sleeve and said, Steve, tell me about your God just as an emphasis. I did that so I could say that now in the second service as an illustration. But that's what they will do. There will be a reputation, there will be a knowledge, and they will want to know. But, as part of that, you're seeing is, is a purity. A purity, a purifying, which means a removing of false gods. He says, I will take the idols out. And so when you begin to remove the things that are leading people astray. Now they're, they're able to grasp that sleeve and say, ask questions of what's true. Fourthly, it will be a time of prolonged life. Isaiah 65, no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days for the young man shall die a hundred years old. You know, when someone 17, 18, 20 years old dies, you say, what a tragedy. They had their life taken away so young, there was so much more life to live. And the way Isaiah describes it, he says, it's the man who's a hundred that's young. And honestly, I can't elaborate too much. I don't know how long. all I can tell you is the Bible says people will live longer. And I think fundamentally, if there's no wars, if there's prosperity, if there's better care, better resources, that will lend itself to longer life already. But people will live longer. It will be a time of peace, prosperity, purity, prolonged life. And lastly, all these things lead to one more, which is, A life, a time of personal joy. I mean, this would be a time where you would want to live because of all the things I'm describing. Isaiah 14 says, the whole earth is at rest and quiet. What a great verse. The whole earth at rest. They break forth into singing. I don't even know what that looks like. It's like I walk into a mall and I'm walking there and all of a sudden everybody in the mall just starts singing. I don't know, it uses the word, they just break out in seeing. But the language is used to describe an expression of what's here, joy. And it's, the earth is described as being at rest. It's not at war with each other in any way. Not only wars that are nation against nation, but even inter- in, internal. When I think about one of the greatest wars being raged right now are just cultural wars within our own borders. And the strife that it caused, family against family sometimes, but this is described. this is the entire earth is at rest. And it leads to, to joy. Now, I told you this is a countdown, right? Five, four, three, two, one. that is five descriptions, right of what the uh, millennium will be like four now is i'm going to give you four reasons for it because you might say hey pastor kevin that sounds great why not just go straight to that you know why 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 have this period at all why not why not just skip over it and go right to eternity some people ask that question because in the millennium you're getting a foretaste why not just go right to it so i'm going to give you four reasons why okay First one, reason number one. The millennium is an age where God's stewards will be rewarded. And this comes back to us right now. We did a lesson called our crowning achievement, a sermon, where in that sermon what we talked about was there would come a time where every believer in Christ is going to stand before God. And everything that you've done with your life, everything that God gave you, the number of years that you have lived, the amount of income you've had over your lifetime, the number of children that He gave you, the amount of IQ and knowledge and how you grew that, whatever, everything is put before Him and is tested to show if you used it for the right reasons or you used it for wrong reasons. If you did it for self-glory and to fill your life with comfort, Or did you leverage what He gave you to bring glory to God, to help others, to grow the kingdom, to spread the gospel? And those who pass that test will get different kinds of crowns. We talked an entire sermon about that. But what I want to say to you is that's not the only reward. So in one hand, a reward is a a, a moment of recognition. A crown is the way it's described that goes on your head, like a medal that's being given to you for what you've done, an accomplishment. But another reward is what I'm talking about right here. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 25. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, you see, in this scenario, there's a servant. The master has returned, and he's looked at what the servant has done and said, You've been faithful. I can see what I put you over. You were a good steward of it. You used it well, and because of that, I'm going to give you, look what he says, much. And this is like, it's, it's a reward. You're being rewarded for being a good steward. Now see, in our humanity, sometimes we think, well, I think the reward should be, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now enter into vacation for all of eternity. Sit in that lawn chair and drink an iced tea. And we talked about that in another sermon. Entering into eternity means God's going to give us work to do, responsibilities. And based upon what you're doing right now, we'll have an impact on that. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Now I'm going to give you more. And we can relate to this. The first job that I ever had was washing pots and pans in a food service at Stanford University. Stanford University has like 12 different cafeterias. I was working in one of them, I knew somebody there, I got hired, and I remember, you know, your job is like, there's a big sink, and the cooks, they cook, and then they come and they just put it there, and it's a big pan, and sometimes it was like this, and you would take it and you, and you go over here, and that was your job, you know, it's not really a ton of responsibility, I mean, I could drop a pan, it doesn't really get damaged, you know, not a lot of responsibility, but five years later, I, I had moved up. And I was—I had a position called student manager, which meant now I was over all of the high school and college-age waiters and waitresses for the summer program. Someone like United Way would come in, and they'd do a two-week conference, and we would feed them every meal. There'd be 800 of them that would come into the cafeteria. We'd have to set the tables, we'd have to set out the buffets, we'd have to bring the food out. I'd have to train them, I'd have to organize them, deal with problems, I have to schedule them way more responsibility and never would have been like, well done, pot washer, now we're giving you this job. It's just a lot more responsibility. It's not less. And there's a way in which the millennium is a moment where you are rewarded, where we will see what kind of steward you are right now by what God gives to you. Not only is the millennium... Number Reason number one, reward for God's stewards, but number two reason for the millennium is it fulfills prophetic words. Now, at a base level, what I would say is that there are a lot of prophecies about the future. The pattern that I see in Scripture, take the first advent of Christ, which is Christmas. Jesus comes in the form of a little baby. You can go into the Old Testament and you can see All the prophecies about that, for unto you is born a child this day in the city of, you know it, right? That is a prophecy about the future of the coming Messiah, and guess what? It was fulfilled, literally, not figuratively, not spiritually. It was literally fulfilled, and every one of these prophecies about Christ coming the first time were literally fulfilled. So when I look at all the prophecies about His second coming and these things that we hear as a pastor, as a... As a student of God's word, the pattern for me, the second time he comes, it's literally fulfilled. The prophetic words have to be fulfilled. And I will also add to that, that these, many of these prophecies are promises made to the nation of Israel and to his people. And I see the character of God as being faithful. Faithful. He will fulfill His promises that He's made. Now let me just show you some from the Old Testament. Psalm 72 says kings and nations must worship Christ. Kings and nations. Isaiah 9, the Messiah's government must be established on David's throne, earthly. Isaiah 60, Israel must turn to righteousness and inherit her land forever. There must be, at some point in the future of Israel, a revival of the nation. Zechariah 9, the nations must live in peace under the Messiah's rule. That goes outside of Israel. And Luke 1, Christ must rule over Israel as her Messiah in an unbroken rule. Now, that's just a sampling. There are so many. I couldn't, I can't take the time, but I wanted you to see that. Not only is the millennium... Reward for God's stewards, but it fulfills prophetic words. And reason number three I put here is it answers the saints' prayers. Now, this one is newer for me. As I was studying and preparing, I came across this, and I thought, I never thought about that. But you know the prayers of the saints. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know it. I see some of you are mouthing it as I start to say that. How many times has that prayer been said over the last 2,000 years? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And when Jesus walked around, he talked about his kingdom, he talked about his kingdom and what it would what it, what he wasn't just referring to something that was only spiritual. And the millennium fulfills it. The, the prophetic words, he will come and he will there will be an earthly presence of Jesus Christ over Israel, and his kingdom will come, a kingdom of peace. In my kingdom, this is how you live, and it will unfold in the millennium that way. Now, lastly, I put here reason number four for the millennium, it demonstrates depravity. Depravity. Now let me go back to Revelation 20 before I explain this and read to you the very end. Because you remember when we read through and I highlighted all the times it said thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, right? It says, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. And you see, that's where you get this mix. Well, I thought Satan was defeated and it's all over and it's going to be holiness now for eternity. But he says there's, there's, there's going to be a rebellion at the end of it. And you might think, why? And the answer goes back to total depravity of man paul writes we wrestle not against flesh and blood right we don't our true fight is not against our fellow man paul says our true fight is against spiritual forces in high places and what he means by that is there are demonic forces the spirit world satan and and he's organized like an army and he sends them out in the world and they sow seeds of discord they sow seeds of hate, they lead people away from the gospel, they lead them towards fighting and rebellion and murder and crimes and lust and greed, and he sows the seeds of those. And there's a way in which you could say, man, I wonder what the world would be like if all that was gone, what if we didn't have to wrestle against that? And I go back to that Revelation 20, and do you remember what he said? John says, I saw an angel... And he came down, and it was, it was given to him, it was tasked to him, you're going to take Satan, the devil, the serpent, and you're going to… He had a great chain with him. You're going to bind him with a chain, and he brings him down into something he calls the bottomless pit. And you're going to put him in there, and he says, I'm gonna seal it. Seal it. Why? And he says, so he cannot deceive the nations anymore. Why is there peace and prosperity? These things I've described, part of it is contributed to the fact that the work of Satan is bound during that time. What would it be like to live in a world where we didn't wrestle against flesh and blood, like Paul says? That's what we get to experience in the millennium. However, at the end, it says he's released. And he... Let me finish... And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And the thing you see there at the very end, you see it, the last rebellion. But what is astonishing is that in this reign of Christ, you're grabbing the sleeve of the Jew. you got time and, and you're seeing His reign there. And yet still at the very end, there are people who will rebel against God. And what it shows is that the true depravity of man is here, which is what the Bible teaches. You are stained with a nature that's inside you that leads you away from God to rebel against Him. It shows that no man could stand there and say, well, it's just because of my circumstances that I'm this way. I have an excuse. No. No. Satan has been bound for these thousand years. It's something that comes from within. And we kind of live in an age that does that a lot. We like to point our fingers and say, there's a reason I'm this way. I have an excuse. Culture has brought me up this way. Race has brought me up this way. Governments have provided a context for me that have taught me this. So I'm excused. No, it doesn't matter what kind of family you come from you will be accountable for the choices that you make and there's a way in which the millennium draws that out total depravity of man and lastly it affirms our need for christ as our savior doesn't it now remember this is a countdown five four three two one right i give you five features of the millennium four reasons why now i'm gonna give you three different views of the millennium i gotta i gotta i gotta do this somewhere And since there's three views, it falls great right here. There's three views of the millennium. I'm presenting to you uh, one particular view, but I just want you to know that within Christianity, there's a couple of the thoughts about the millennium. I'm just going to give them to you briefly right here. Number one, post-millennial. Remember, millennial means a thousand years. And you're going to attach this prefix, the word post, which uh, means the end. And what this view says is that Christ will come back at the end of the thousand years, which is different than what I'm saying. What I've been saying is He's going to come back, and then He enters, ushers in His kingdom. Now, this view became very popular in the mid-1700s. Uh, it was uh, put out there a lot by, popularized by a pastor with the last name of Whitby. And the view is that the church is going to usher in the return of Christ. Yes, it's a, it's a, all those things you said, Pastor Kevin, are true. It's a time of peace and prosperity, yes, but the church has got to get it done. The church has got to preach and lead people to Christ. And if everybody's becoming Christians, it's going to be a better world, and we will usher in the return of Christ. Like Christ is up there, and he's watching. He's like, they're getting better, they're getting better, they're getting better. Now I'm coming back. The, the age of peace has ushered me in. Now the only problem with this view, it's not getting better. Now, true, maybe you could turn around, but this view, as it became popular in the mid-1700s, began to be less popular in the early 1900s when we went through World War I, when we had the Great Depression, when we went through World War II, and a whole bunch of wars through that century. It became smaller and smaller, the number of people that held it. That's the post-millennial view. second view I'm going to give you is called the amillennial view. Now, this Prefix the letter A. If you put it before a word, it negates that word. So, "a millennial" literally would mean "no millennial." I'm negating the millennial, the the thousand years, meaning I, there's, it's not it's not real. It's not a real thousand years. It's not a real period of time. And in this view, it spiritualizes. It, it looks at that and says, thousand years" is synonymous with something spiritual, something that's happening, that's bring, that's bringing about in the world, but it's not real number of years. This one is more popular than the post-millennial, but it is dependent upon spiritualizing parts of Scripture using allegory. And The problem I always had with this is there's no metric to know exactly how much of the Bible you should spiritualize and how much of the Bible that shouldn't be spiritualized. Some people will go so far over here to spiritualize the resurrection of Christ. Wasn't a real body that came out of that grave. And I've always, and I came out of schools that taught literal interpretation of scripture. What did, whatever the, the writer says is what he meant. Now, sometimes there is some allegory, but it's usually pretty obvious. I just read to you a verse that called Satan four different names, and one of them was a serpent. It doesn't mean that he's an actual snake. It's describing him as being crafty and sneaky like the snake. That's that's allegory. I know that, that when I read that, I know that, because other parts of the Bible tell me that he's a fallen angel, that he's a spirit, a spiritual being. He's not a, a snake. But this view, it, it taxes you with that to try to discern how much of the Bible we should allegorize and how much we should not. Now, I come from a school, and, and I, I said this in the first service, that a great deal of my, especially my master's work, was spent on eschatology and studying these different views and I think the best view and the one that's that is accurate is the third view which is the premillennial view which is what I'm telling you today that the plain reading of this scripture that Christ will come back and he will bind Satan and he will fulfill prophecies made he will reward us and there will be a time period that he reigns on earth now that's three views five four Three, two, one. We're counting down. Some of you are like, "All right, we're getting to the end of this." Okay, you know, because there's lunch. You're like five, four, three, two, one. Lunch. No, no. Five, five, four, three, two, one. Millennial Kingdom. Okay, but uh, number two is two kinds of people in the millennium. I wanted. I, I didn't want to pass this over. I just want to. I want you to see this because when we talked about um, our bodies, right? When we talked about our bodies, when we die. We go to heaven. We're with the Lord. We're in paradise. He gives us a temporary one, but when we come back, the resurrected body comes out. What was that body like? And we talked about that. Our old body is perishable. Our new body, imperishable. Remember? Do you remember this lesson we talked about? And the word I used was transformation. In fact, I even put a little picture of a transformer up there. You know, I wanted that to stick in your mind. There's a transformation that's going to happen. The sin nature that that we have in us is going to be removed. Okay, There's so many great things about this transformed new body. And in the millennium, what I want you to catch is that there are two two kinds of people, and there are those that come back with Christ who are transformed in that way. And then, obviously, number two is there are uh, those that are not yet transformed. There are those on earth that have not yet died, that will go into the millennium that don't have those kind of bodies. One thing I I point out is, as you read through that uh, Revelation 20 is he says um, um, he threw him into the pit, shut it, sealed it over him, may not deceive a thousand years. And then it says um, in verse 4, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Now I think that has reference to Um, Israel. Uh, But also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus for the word of God. Now these are going to be people who died and if they died they're coming back and they're going to have this transformed body. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So you see this mix. Um, That's the first resurrection he says. But you see this kind of mix and that's it's To explain it in its totality, I I cannot. And this is one of the things about eschatology. God gives us some things specifically, and there's some things He doesn't give us specifically. But I do notice that about the millennium. Now, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and the last one is, there's one king of peace. You know, I put this one here because I get frustrated when I look at leaders of the world. I look at leaders of of Guam, of the U.S., of the globe, and sometimes it's it's disheartening. The thing about the King of Peace, and I, I think I said this earlier in this message, was He will be a king, first of all, of character. He is holy. We will never open up social media To see something about him that was discovered in his past. He will never say something or do something that is not right. That is the attribute of righteousness. Righteousness means that everything he does, his decisions, his actions are right. He is a just king. That means whatever the decision he makes, there's justice in it. And we're always wrestling with these things. Well, you know, these leaders you know, that wasn't a good decision, or there's, there's bad character here, or they can't. And he will not be like that. There will be one king of peace, and there will be, for all the failed attempts at trying to bring peace about in this world, and bring people together, and, and eradicate poverty, and eradicate um, disease, and he will be able to do it. And I think that that's where we have to to land it. One king of peace. And I put this verse up here that Paul writes in Philippians 2. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, you know what's so magnificent about that? First of all, Paul covers every category. It doesn't matter if you're a person in heaven, if you're a person below the earth, if you're a person on the earth, every knee will bow. And you can't say that about any other leader ever. Somewhere on earth, there was someone who didn't bow to a leader, even today. You might have people like, we're a great nation and we we give honor and respect, but we're not going to bow to that leader over there. But he is a leader that will unite in that way. Every leader and who wouldn't want to be in a kingdom that has peace and prosperity and leads to joy and these things we've covered today now the last thing that I want to give you cuz we just did the 54321 and somebody said I was waiting for you to say blast off but I'm not going to say that but I want you to think about this cuz thousands of years you say well pastor you know thousands of years why that you know that seems, that's a, that's, for us, that's a long amount of time. But I want I um, <clears throat> to take you to uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, where Paul reminds us something about God. Peter says this in, in 2 Peter 3, he says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. In other words, it might seem like a long time to us, but it's not for God. And do you remember the beginning of the, of the message where I kept reading all those Old Testament prophets quotes? What did they keep saying? That day, looking ahead, that day and on that day, they kept talking about it that way, right? And here, here Peter says, one day is like what? A thousand years. And we get to Revelation and it says, it's a thousand years that we're going to reign with him. And speaking of a thousand years, did you know that the period of a thousand years separated Abraham from, da- from Abraham from David, and a period of a thousand years separated David from Christ, and a period of a thousand years separated Christ from the High Middle Ages, and a period of a thousand years separated the High Middle Ages to us today? Is that kind of interesting? And. When He returns, we will enter into that penultimate, the last age before the final age. And one pastor said, it will be the earth's most glorious day, a thousand years of golden glory. Thank you, Lord, for Your Word, for the hope that we can draw from it. As we said, or as I said in the message, Father, that when we look at our leaders of the world, we want to hope, we want to be hopeful, we want to have confidence. Sometimes we do and sometimes there's flashes of, of the things that we would want in this world that we see in leaders and what they can bring about. But our world is full of sin and wickedness and rebellion. And I am so grateful to know that there will come a day where the true king of this world will return and he will set up a kingdom that will be the kind of kingdom we all long for. It doesn't matter if we use the word kingdom or nation or it's going to be his. And he will be righteous and just and pure and holy. And I pray that when we face troubled times and stress and we look at our leaders and we look at the direction of our countries and, and, and we get dejected. We, we can feel hope fading. I pray that we would be reminded of what our true future is and put our hope where it should be, in Christ. And we lift this up in His name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll finish as we worship together?